0: Welcome and happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I trust that you have all had a wonderful time with family and friends, maybe had one big meal or two or three or four uh, big meals, had lots of opportunity to be around the table uh, sharing memories and, and uh, Thanksgiving together. I appreciate so much Angie's uh, communion meditation this morning. It reminded me as she was sharing it uh, during her first service about when she talked about the table. Uh, the, the table that we sat around when I was growing up my, at my grandma 's house, and I actually have that today when my grandma passed away. Nobody else in the family wanted it and my wife, my, my wife and I said, "We want that table. we want that old kitchen table in our kitchen, and not only does it go with the the decor that Katie has in the kitchen, uh, but it's it 's just a lot of memories to me, a lot of memories sitting around this table telling funny stories, eating simple food, playing games, having conversations. Some of them were, were, were encouraging, uplifting conversations. Sometimes they were sometimes difficult conversations to have. Uh, I remember one particular memory, uh, which was a very good memory to me, uh, was sitting at that table when I was 12 years old, and my dad uh, talking to me about accepting Jesus as my Savior and Lord for the very first time. And that, that will always stick in my mind as a memory around that table, a place where we shared family, we shared the joys of life, uh, we shared grieving sometimes around that table. Uh, all of these we were able to do because we are family. Even in our house today, uh, we, have, we, we had a big dinner Thursday with our family, and, and then on some of our extended family, a couple of our students joined us uh, this, uh, this past Thursday around our Thanksgiving table. And I find that even when the students come throughout the week to share a meal with us, they always want to sit around the dining room table or the kitchen table because they want to be with each other, sharing family time with each other. And I think that's when, when, you, when you sum up Paul's writing, not, not only to the Philippians, but to all of the churches that he speaks to. There's always this idea of a togetherness that we share. And Paul is going to, in this last chapter, in this letter to the Philippian church, really emphasize that, really bring that home. Throughout this entire letter, Paul helps the church to understand the unity of the body. As we face persecution and oppression. As we serve one another. As we handle disagreements with one another. He encourages us to press on toward the goal, to take that prize. And, see, and as he says from the very beginning, even till this last chapter, he says, "What? I will say it again. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice! Your life work is completed." At, in the very first verse of Philippians chapter four, Paul says this: "Therefore, my brothers and sisters." You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Paul has been, Paul just got done talking about how we are founded in Christ. He has been resurrected from the dead and we will experience that same resurrection from the dead. And he is saying, therefore, my family, stand firm. You are my joy. You are my crown. I love you. And what he is saying there is that the greatest thing that gives me joy is not possessions. It's not success in life. It's that when I sit at the table with you, even in my mind as I envision myself sitting at the table with you, I see your faces. I see who you are. And as I look at you, even each individually, and together as a church, I look at you, and you are my joy and my crown. In other words, there's no award, there's no prize, there's no gift that I could achieve, no success in life, but to know that you have grown up in Jesus Christ, that you are growing in him and you're producing fruit in your life. And we probably all think of people that sit around our table, that we know that we can look back and we can say, I am proud of you. I'm proud of you. I remember making that statement even just this Thursday about how proud I am of of my both of my boys for Daniel and Noah to see how they have grown and 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 where they are at today not because they have achieved something but because they love the Lord and they are producing fruit in their life that keeps with that love of the Lord who are you proud of who can you look back on and say stand firm keep going keep running after that prize." Don't stop being the representation and the image of Jesus in the world. That would be Paul's encouragement to us this morning. But, and you know it was coming, here is the fly in the soup. The next couple verses he says, as he's thinking about this, this, this group of people, he points out a couple people and he names names. I plead with Iodia and plead with Syntyche. How would, ladies, those sound like attractive names to you, right? (laughs) I I don't know anybody named these names except right here in this passage of Scripture. But he points out these two ladies, Iodia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul didn't just do that, did he? He didn't just write this letter and just, that's going to be circulated all among the church, and everybody knows who they are, and he points them out. Can you imagine being Yodia and Syntyche listening to this letter being read to the entire group of people that are meeting in this house? And Paul names their names. Can you imagine how the people responded? I mean, I I can imagine just a few people kind of sinking down in their sinks. Yeah, these two women are so difficult to get along with, but I don't have the courage enough to say what you just said, Paul. Boy, Paul, you have really stirred up a hornet's nest here. Or I'm glad Paul mentions something because I wouldn't have had the guts to do something like that. Paul goes to the very heart of the matter. He deals with the elephant that is in the room. And the reason why he does this is because these two women who were very useful to Paul and important to the church, weren't getting along with each other. We don't know exactly why, but he pleads with them and he says, listen, work this out, get this right. Understand why you're not getting along. We should strive to get along with our family, but because of our different makeups, temperaments, passions, we will have a hard time getting along with one another. And you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. As many of us are probably sitting around that Thanksgiving table, we knew that, that uh, odd Uncle George was going to be coming, out, coming to the table, and, he, and you know, he was going to say something that was going to be off the wall and embarrassing everybody else around that table. Or maybe you had a brother or a sister that nobody seems to get along with in their family, and you know you've got to love them, and you know you've got to invite them to Thanksgiving, but when it comes down to it, when they leave, you're like, oh, I'm glad to be done with that. I'm glad that this person is not in this room today. We don't, we're don't. made that way. And, and it's unfortunate that those kind of things ha- happen. But I believe that there is a reason. I believe that there is a reason. The gr- it's greater than our personal desires. God desires that we would have unity and harmony. Because that's what we have in common. We have Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Paul knows what he's talking about. Toward the end of his life as he is sitting here in prison in Rome... He, I would imagine he's probably picturing a time when he had a conflict with other people as well. As he was young in the faith, as he was going out and starting to preach the gospel, he was paired up with who? Barnabas, the son of encouragement. This man would come alongside of Paul when the church was, was believing that he was bad. I mean, he was a persecutor of Christians. Who would want to listen to him? But they would listen to Barnabas. And Barnabas would promote Paul as he went along. Listen, Paul's changed. Listen to him. But Barnabas kept doing that. He kept bringing young guys in and encouraging them. And he brought this young man in, John Mark, maybe 16, 17, 18 years old, getting ready to go to Bible college, getting ready to go into ministry. And he had a lot of, a lot of idealistic ideas and thoughts. And Paul, at this time in his life, was very impatient with John Mark. And Barnabas, he and Barnabas had a disagreement. Even though they got along with each other in ministry, as soon as Barnabas brought this element in, Paul had a terrible conflict with Barnabas to the point where Barnabas said, okay, that's enough. Maybe it's best that we just part ways, that we just don't hang out with each other. You go your way, Paul, and I'll go my way, and I'm going to take John Mark because I believe in him, and I'm going to take him to be with me. But Paul learned. Later on, we'll find in some of his writings that Paul is going to look back and he's going to say, now I want you to send John Mark to me because he is invaluable to my work. Because of Barnabas, he encouraged him and brought him along. And that conflict ended because Paul was able to see the value in this young man. Listen, have you ever said this phrase, I don't want to say anything to that person because I don't want to hurt their feelings. How many of you have said that before? Okay, there are probably a whole lot more people that need to be honest with me right now. Because we thought that before, right? We know that somebody, there, there's some conflict within us. We, we, somebody should say something, but it's not going to be me. Because I don't want to hurt that person's feelings. Do you realize, do we realize what we are really saying when we say, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to hurt their feelings? We really don 't care about their feelings at all. We care more about our feelings and about the conflict that's going to happen because we will say something. What would it be like if we put aside our feelings and did the really difficult thing? What would what if we decide to take the difficult road and confront and yet the more this being the more rewarding road and mentor I mean truly disciple others through difficult in relationships. And even more importantly, think about what Paul does in this text. He doesn't go into details about these women. All he has to do is mention their names and say that there's a problem here. But then, what does he say about them? He says, they are invaluable to me because they have contended for me as I am spreading the gospel. In other words, they have stood beside me and protected me and supported me And we need them as part of this body. We need them as part of this body. Both of them, not one or the other. Not one or the other is not uh, more important. They both need to be a part of this. So work this out. Listen, what would it be like if we focused on the good things? I'm not saying over and above. There are times where we do need to enter into that tunnel of chaos and deal with something that's difficult. But listen, the way that God has created us is more important than those things, and we need to speak the truth and love to each other. While times are difficult, when we face oppression or struggle, our struggle is not against each other, but against evil in the world that seeks to lead us off track. That is why Paul says this in Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Rejoice and stand firm. Secondly, rejoice. Find God's peace through prayer. Here again, Paul says this one more time. As if they haven't gotten it, I want you to get it. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the God of peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul calls us to have a gentle spirit. And that's just one word that really describes a whole lot of things that we need to be speaking into other people's lives. We need to speak grace. We need to speak unselfishness, mercy, tolerance, and patience. And why do we do that? Because the Lord is near. Because the Lord is near. Not Not that he is necessarily near in coming, and yet we also know that there's a day that, that, that Jesus Christ will come back. We have been promised that. God has fixed that date somewhere here in eternity. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next year. But the Lord is near, meaning his presence is here right now. You've heard this phrase from your parents at one point in time in your life, right? You just wait till your dad gets home. Because when he comes home, he's going to make everything right. Right? Okay, get your act together before he comes home. Otherwise, you're going to be in big trouble. I don't think that that's what Paul is saying, but he is saying, "Listen, his presence is right here. Is this deserving of of if of his uh, attention? The Lord is present among us always. Live your life in such a way that you not only know he is here, but that you demonstrate his presence to one another." And then he talks about he says, "Do not be anxious." What's, what's the, what's the reason for the anxiety in our life? This restless spirit, worry, concern. I remember growing up. Another fond memory that I have growing up, uh, wh- when I was little, um, before we were, at, we all three of us were in school. My dad would drive, would uh, take the bus. He would get on the bus right outside of my house in Washington, Pennsylvania and ride the bus all the way to Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, for, for work. And it would take him about an hour to do that 30-mile 30, 30 trip. And then he would come back on the bus and get off the bus, and he'd be home. In the afternoon, when my dad was coming home, we'd be outside playing. But we knew about the time he would come home, and we'd be looking down the road for that bus to come. And as soon as the bus pulled up to the, to the sidewalk, we, we were there ready for him. Now, he's getting off the bus. He just got done working. He just got done traveling. He's carrying his lunchbox. He is probably tired and weary for the day and ready just to sit and relax for a little bit. But these three little, little ones come running up to him and say, Daddy's home, Daddy's home, Daddy's home. Because we long for our dad to be present in our home, to be there. And everything was all right now, now that Daddy's home. Now that Daddy brings security And peace. This is what I think it's kind of like when we pray. Because we know, as a body of believers, we know that He is here among us. His presence is here in our lives, and His Holy Spirit indwells us. And as we bring our concerns before God, having a faith that springs from thanksgiving, God will give us patience and He will give us peace. And this attitude will guard our hearts and be our protection. We do this together. We do this together as a church, as a community, and together we bring the peace of God into this place. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put those things into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul has set them an example, and he is encouraging them, stop focusing on the negative things. Because in this life, we're going to always have trouble. But listen, God is present. Focus on his presence being here. This is the power of a disciplined life. Being coming transformed by the renewing of the mind. And lastly, be content, rejoice, be content through thanksgiving. And As I was thinking about this, I imagined, I imagined Paul sitting at the table, kind of like Jimmy Fallon with those note cards. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. But this is Paul's attitude. In every one of the letters he writes, he always finds a reason to be thankful for the people. Even if he is writing a letter like he does to the Corinthians where he wants to really point out there is something wrong here and you're being a poor witness, he still thanks God for these people. And even in the midst of this, as he's thinking about the end of his life, he is also thanking God for them. And he and this is how he describes it. Listen to these words. Starting at verse 10 I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know that I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. How does, how does Paul rejoice in the Lord over the Philippians' concern for him, even though he has learned to be content no matter what the circumstances are? In other words, he's saying, it almost sounds like he's saying, thank you for the gift, but I didn't really need it. And that's not what he's saying at all. The Stoics and the Cynics that were living in this day took a tremendous amount of pride in showing that they could live with very little. They would accept no gifts. They would accept no help. They were a very independent thinking people, and they were proud of it. Does it sound like anything similar today? I think it, it, it almost speaks very much to our American culture today. We take pride in our independence. We say that we are a country who is founded on the concept of independence from an oppressive monarch, which is true. But we have twisted that today into meaning that we don't need anybody anymore. And it's manifested itself, I think, in two ugly ways. One, prideful independence from one another. I will make my own success by myself. I will pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't need anything from anyone else. I don't need charity. I don't need assistance. I don't need your help. Because we feel that would be needy, that would be bad, as if needy is a bad thing. And the other way that has manifests itself is selfish entitlement that says, I am. Thank you, government. Thank you, group. Thank you for all of these things. I'm going to keep coming to you for all of these things, and I'm never going to do anything to be a part of the process. I think the question needs to be answered is, what do you value the most? How does Paul rejoice? Paul is thankful for the church that he is part of that is interdependent on one another. You know what I mean? In other words, he's saying, I'm content, I'm doing okay, but you know what? I rejoice in the Lord and I trust in him. He's going to provide for everything that I need. And so, Philippians, when you sent me that gift, when nobody else was sending it to me, I knew that that was from God. I knew that God prompted you to give me that gift and I thank God for you. But even if he didn't do it, I knew that God was going to provide for me. And it's the same thing with us. We learn to be content in every circumstance. But when we receive gifts, we know that that is the way that God has given us. A church that is interdependent in each other values relationships, the relationships of every individual. We are family in this church. We, We value the giftedness of each individual over and above the things that need to be done around here. We put people in the right place to serve. We value community that we have, not just so that we can have small groups, but we know that that's going to be one of the best ways that we show the love of Christ and we practice the presence of Jesus in this world. We value the other. And we know this, that the early church demonstrated this in a powerful way. In Acts chapter 2, we see it from verse 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Can you imagine what the world would be like today if we sold what we had so that others could have? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. In other words, they loved getting together for Thanksgiving dinners, and they did it all the time. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Which I think that last verse is so significant. Because even in the church, we can be so success-minded, thinking that we are doing the right thing when we're filling the pews. Look, folks, when we are being the body of Christ, it's God that fills the pews and not us. When we love one another from the heart And we are thankful and rejoice in the Lord together for his presence among us. The world doesn't see a church that's in conflict with one another, but a church that loves one another. And people want to be a part of that. And that's, to me, that sounds so much better. So much easier to watch God move in those ways. And when the church has this attitude, we can say with confidence the same as Paul I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's not, that, it's not just that, that, that verse we learned in Sunday school a long time ago, but now we really understand the meat of that when he says, even when I'm in need, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Even when I'm being persecuted, even when I'm in jail, even when I'm oppressed, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength because I know that he is going to do that for me. This is a statement of faith that Paul is making. And it's how Paul was able to be content, trusting that God will give him everything that he needs to continue, no matter the circumstances. The Philippians showing care to him was an action of God, giving him strength to continue. The Philippians had become a demonstration of God's faithfulness. How have you seen others demonstrate God's faithfulness to you? Are you thankful for that? That is a time of true thanksgiving. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in a matter of giving and receiving, except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is saying, I'm not just doing this by myself. Have you ever felt alone in the work that you're doing? I'm sure that Paul could have felt very much alone in the house prison that he, where he was at in Rome. But he knew that there was a group of people back in a little town of Philippi who were meeting together, praying for him, supporting him in their need. And he knew that he was not alone because they were shared with him in the work. They partnered with him in the work. And he was credited to their account, meaning that God desire, Paul desired to boast in the Lord at the spiritual growth of his disciples. I want to remind you to do something. Accept gifts given to you by others. I know some of us have a hard time doing that. We get a gift And we say, oh, no, you didn't have to do that, which I always come back and say, if I had to do it, I wouldn't have done it. (laughs) No, accept a gift. Accept a gift because God is showing you his kindness and faithfulness to others. It is an opportunity for others to demonstrate their worship through giving. Don't squash that spirit. And when you give, we are also saying the same. We trust that God will provide, and he will be faithful to meet all of our needs. And to finish up this letter, Paul then writes these words. Greet all the people, all of God's people in Christ Jesus, the brothers and sisters who are with me, and send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings. Listen to this. Especially those who belong to Caesar's household the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Especially those of Caesar's household. Did you catch that? As he's writing this letter, there are believers that are among the church that come, and he's teaching and worshiping with them, and they're supplying his needs right there. The church, he's saying the people in the church send their greetings, as well as Caesar's household. How is it that Paul has built a relationship with with a group of people that are considered a part of Caesar's household, and now they send greetings out to people that they do not know. They probably could have been any slaves or civil service or guard. Irregardless, this would have been a tremendous encouragement to the people of Philippi and obviously a tremendous encouragement to Paul. Paul may have been in prison, and he may seem like a loser by the world's standards, but Paul would continue to teach and have an influence no matter what his circumstances are. So stand firm, folks. Stand firm, church, and rejoice in the Lord, no matter where you are at, no matter what your situation is. And watch how God gives you opportunity with the refugee and the oppressor. Watch how God gives you opportunity with the Christian and the non-believer. Watch how God gives you opportunity with the victim's family and the gunman. Watch how God gives you opportunity with those who are homosexual and those who are straight. Watch how God gives you the opportunity for the rich and the poor, your boss, your coworker, your neighbor, your school, your, your school as he is doing with our, our, our Give 2015 project. And like Angie said, you may never see the faces of the individuals that you give, who, give to, but God is showing his presence through you, church, as you do that. Watch how God gives you the opportunity to, to, for those who have plenty and those who don't have a place to lay their head or know where their next meal comes from. But listen, maybe today God will give you also an opportunity to help you to be the very presence of Jesus as you sit across the table with the person that you're going to eat a meal with in just a little bit. Every day, he gives us an opportunity. And it could be somebody... Of royal standing, like Caesar's household, or somebody who nobody will ever know their name, but God will give us an opportunity. So stand firm, rejoice. Jesus is alive today. Be the presence of Jesus Christ as you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for this body of believers that shows the very presence of Christ in this world, the desires to worship and to rejoice in Jesus Christ at every moment. Thank you, Father, for the growth that will occur as a result of this rejoicing. Father, thank you for showing us contentment through Thanksgiving and giving us peace through our prayers. Thank you, Father, for today in Jesus' name.